All right, so here's how we're going to kick this off. Uh, same way we do every Sunday. We're going to talk to the kids, and then we're going to read the passage. So kids, we're going to let you know what the passage is going to be about, and what the sermon's going to be about, okay? i help you follow along a little better. Okay, so kids, do you all know what an auction is? Have you all ever seen this on TV or something? Or maybe you've been to an auction. We know what an auction is. Grant, yes? Good? Luke, yes? Okay, so auction is like you go to a place and you're going to buy something. And, and there are all these people that want to, like, like right here, if we were going to auction off, say, this cup. Uh, I'm going to auction off this cup. Let's start the bidding. Uh, communion cup. What, what do I got? All right, I got a bid. Hey, I got a bid here. And they're like, hey, $5 here. Oh, oh we got $5 here. We got $10 here. Hey, we got, like, that's one way to do an auction. And then there are other ways to do an auction where it's super, super fancy. So there's a super, super fancy auction in London called Sotheby's, something like that, where they they auction off this super expensive stuff, like artwork and, and things like that. And it's more like, you know, there's no yelling. They're just like people holding up signs, like who's gonna give me like $5,000, $500,000. Okay, so at this auction, this really famous auction, there was a painting that was being auctioned off by this really famous painter. Nobody knows who he is though. He's this, uh, he's this anonymous artist, secret identity, nobody knows who he is. And they're auctioning off his painting uh, it's called Girl with Balloon. It's a little girl uh, who's holding a balloon. He spray painted it on some canvas. Who likes to paint? Okay, this one sold, guess how much this painting sold for? $1.4 million. Anybody wanna think about being an artist? No? Kids? This thing, so who, can, who can draw a little girl with a balloon? Okay. Well, this one sold for $1.4 million. And then right after he's like, sold to so-and-so for $1.4 million. Right after the gavel went down at the auction, a beeping noise went off. Beep, 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 beep. And everyone's kind of kind of looking around and they look at the painting. They see that it's coming from the painting. Then all of a sudden, the painting starts going through the bottom of the frame and it's getting all shredded up. It goes halfway through the frame, totally destroyed and all shredded. And everyone is looking around, shocked, in disbelief, and the person who bought it fainted. Just kidding, I don't know if they fainted. They probably did. But, but this is a true story. You can go home and look this up. It's all caught on camera. This really, really, really happened. That someone bought this painting for $1.4 million, and within a second it was ruined. And then this video came out. The artist posted, anonymous artist, he's all masked up, posted this video showing where he built a shredder into the frame of the painting in case it was ever sold so that he could pull off that stunt. And this artist is kind of edgy like that. And his point is, his point is, you've invested in this thing that you think is so awesome and beautiful, but it's really a joke. Ha ha, in your face. Okay, so this is what Paul, in our, in, in our passage today, in the sermon today, this is what Paul is going to say. He's going to say, listen, if dead people stay dead, if dead Christians stay dead after they die, then guess what? All this Jesus stuff, all this Christianity stuff, all this church stuff, it's a joke. And we're a joke. If dead people stay dead, then there really is no salvation. It's all a joke. Uh, now, then he's going to say something else. 
But what is the good news? What is the good news of the gospel, kids? What's the good news about Christianity? What's the good news about Jesus? Just throw out anything you want. You are going to live forever. Why are you going to live forever? Because he really did die on the cross. And did he stay dead? Where is he right now? He really, really is in heaven. And because he really, really rose from the dead, what's going to happen to you after you die one day? Heaven. Okay, good. Now follow me here. Is the, it, what are we really, really looking forward to? Kids, you want to go to heaven, right? Yes, for sure, for sure, for sure. Okay, when you die, where does your body go? In the ground. Where does your soul go? Heaven. Okay, is that how it's going to be forever and ever and ever? No. What else are we looking forward to? And what is Je- we want Jesus to come back because our bodies under the, gra- under the ground, in the grave, our souls up in heaven, that is not the end of the story. That is just a stop along the way to real ultimate forever glory, which is what? Jesus coming back, and what's he going to do when he comes back? Make a new world, which is going to include what for you? New body! He is going to take your soul. He's going to get your body up out of the grave, all gross and disgusting. He's going to remake it brand new and awesome and put your soul back in your body. Resurrection. That is really, really, as crazy as that sounds, that is really going to happen. And you're going to live in this new creation, new world, new heavens forever and ever and ever, physically, bodily. Paul is going to say today, listen, if that's not true— if all it is is, oh, our souls go into heaven, our bodies stay in the ground, that's not really salvation. Jesus not only died to beat our sin, he also rose from the dead to beat our death. And that's really, really true. That's what we're going to look at today. That's our ultimate hope. We're in 1 Corinthians. Paul is dealing with all these divisions that are going on in the church. So it's like one right after another. Uh, and here he gets to the end of the letter. He's really, really going off on resurrection. And uh, today we're going to be in chapter 15, verses 12 to 34. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, 
when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted. He, he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. And what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. If bad company ruins good morals, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. The word of the Lord. And please be seated. Okay, I'd actually like to begin at the end, at verse 33, where it says what we just read, bad company ruins good morals. Y'all remember the, uh, the 70s English rock supergroup, Bad Company? I can't say the names of their songs in church. But lead man Paul Rogers explained how he came up with the name Bad Company. And it's, it came from when he was a kid. This is what he said. He said, I saw a book on Victorian morals. I saw this picture of this Victorian punk dressed all tough with the top hat and the spats and the vests and the watch and the pocket and the tails. Everything was raggy. The shoes were popped out of the soles. The top of the hat was popped out. He's leaning on the lamppost with a bottle in his hand and a pipe in his mouth. Obviously a dodgy person. You've got this little choir boy, little kid looking up to him, and underneath it it said, beware of bad company. And that's where they got the name bad company. That line Beware of bad company comes from 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Kind of. Uh, except that's not what Paul means. Uh, because Paul said in this letter, just 10 chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 5, he said that the Corinthians should hang out with bad people. They should hang out with the bad people of the world. They just shouldn't hang out with the hypocrites in the church. Those are the ones you really got to watch out for. And he's not contradicting himself at the end of the letter. Uh, here's a better translation. It would be bad communication ruins good morals. And incidentally, 70s English rock supergroup band names. Uh, it's true that bad company can corrupt. That it's true bad company can corrupt your life if you're around bad teaching, if you're around bad worldviews in that bad company and you start caving in, you start compromising, uh, you start adopting that bad teaching for your own life, and you start believing that stuff, yeah, that will corrupt your life. Okay, in Corinth, there's bad communication about the resurrection, and it is ruining people's lives. It's back to the beginning of the passage. Paul says, listen, it is a really, really big problem if you say the dead are not raised, because then you are saying that Christ is not raised. And if you take a second and you think about that, you, you, you kind of want, you really do want to say, wait, Paul, I think you've got that order backwards. 
Like, shouldn't it be if you deny Jesus' resurrection, then you deny our resurrection? But Paul says the opposite. He says, if you deny the physical, physical bodily resurrection of believers, then you deny the resurrection of Jesus, even if you say the resurre- resurrection of Jesus is for real. And Paul says it this way because there is a group, there's a group within the Corinthian church that believes that they have already been resurrected, that they've already experienced the resurrection. And they did not deny that Jesus had been resurrected bodily from the grave after having been crucified, dead, and buried. But they're saying, but, but that's, that's Jesus. That's the Son of God. We're not going to be resurrected like that with a body. Uh, we're going to keep getting filled with the Spirit more and more and more. And when our bodies eventually die off, we'll simply remain as spiritual beings. And that very awful bad communication, Paul is saying, uh, that very awful bad communication, that terrible teaching, loved ones, continues to be so pervasive in the church today. I mean, what ha- think about what have we been taught by, by misguided, well-intentioned, well-meaning church teaching uh, by our culture? We've been taught that if you're a good person or, you know, you put the Christian spin on it, if you're a Christian, you die and your soul goes to heaven forever and ever and ever, and that's it. That, that is a denial of the resurrection of Jesus, even if you love Easter and you believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Paul says that does not work. If you deny the bodily resurrection of believers, then you deny Jesus' bodily resurrection. Because he says the two are inseparable. Here's his, here's his logic. You can see Paul's upbringing and his, his uh, academia coming out here uh, with all these logical statements. These are his if-then statements. Basically, verse 16, If dead people stay dead, then Jesus is still dead. And verse 17, if Jesus is still dead, then Jesus and Christianity is a joke. Verse 19, and if Jesus and this faith is a joke, then we are the biggest part of the joke and pity us. But, he says, dead people don't stay dead. And instead of giving us a a theological treatise right here, Paul uh, he gives us, he start, what he really, really gives us here is a picture. He gives us a metaphor, this thing of the first fruits. And you don't have to be, a, this is agriculture stuff. You don't have to be a farmer to get this. Uh, first fruits, it's simple, it has to do with a harvest. And this all comes from the Old Testament. There were these three major Jewish festivals, three times a year. All the Jews traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate these festivals together and worship at the temple in Jerusalem. One of the festivals is called the Feast of First Fruits what we call Pentecost. And it took place in the spring, uh, one day festival during the spring harvest. The first fruits of the harvest, uh, it's, it's like the, the, the new grain. It's the, uh, the new fruits, the, uh, the, the new addition to the flocks that are just, just coming in. It's the first vintage of the new wine. It's the new oil press that has just come in. These first fruits would be offered up as sacrifices as recognition uh, that the whole harvest, the, you know, the whole flock, the whole harvest, 
the whole quantity of wine, all the oil, it's going to come in the fall. We see it. Here it is in the spring. We know all of it is coming in the fall. But, okay, and, and it all comes from God. So we're, we're sacrificing this to say we, we believe all this stuff. But calling that sacrifice first fruits, it's not just about which portion of the harvest comes in which order, okay? It is a claim about organic unity. It is a claim uh, about connection that the first of the harvest represents the whole harvest. It's coming, and it's just started. So Paul's point is that the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of believers, they cannot be separated. Why? Because Christ's resurrection is the first fruits. First fruits of what? The first fruits of a harvest of resurrection. As in, for it, as in verse 22, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Jesus and his believers, they are part of the same harvest. It's the same harvest. One harvest of resurrection. So, it does not, usually when you hear this stuff talked about, it does not go far enough to say Jesus' resurrection guarantees our resurrection. Yes, keep going. As in, it is so much more than God has promised to raise us from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus is the guarantee of our resurrection because Jesus' resurrection is the actual beginning. It is the actual beginning of the harvest of resurrection that we share in bodily, physically, at his return. So that question of, okay, when will the resurrection take place in which we believers have a share in? It's already happened. It's already begun. The harvest of resurrection that belongs at the end of history has already entered history with Jesus' resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is not just an awesome miracle that took place 2,000 years ago. If you deny our bodily resurrection, then you deny Jesus's because they are connected. They are unified. They're that inseparable, Paul is saying. It's a, it's a unity in that his resurrection and our bodily resurrection are the beginning and the end of the one and the same harvest of resurrection. And there are, there are these Corinthian folk and there are people today who are still caught up in this, this Greek pagan thinking of that Greek pagan world at that time that it's really no different from a lot of the New Age thinking today where we just, we depreciate the body. As in the body isn't really part of you. It doesn't really matter what you do with the body. You can indulge it. You can reshape it. You can beat it up if you want. You can do it through all kinds of, you know, just go nuts, free living, licentious living, or you can have this really, really, really ascetic lifestyle where you just beat yourself up. It, none of it really, really matters, ultimately, because one day we're going to die, uh, and we're going to be separated from the body forever. So the body right now, ultimately, it doesn't matter. Why? There's this question. Why did Jesus have to die for us? He had to die for our sins. Great. Okay. Why did Jesus have to be raised from the dead for us? 
That one seems a little trickier. It's not. Brian Habig, he's a pastor in South Carolina. He talks about this woman. He talks about her from time to time. He uses this illustration a lot. This woman was raised as a Hindu, uh, and then she explored uh, the Baha'i faith, which is uh, kind of a, a recent New Age religion. And then she became a Christian. And she talks about what it was like to hear about the Christian faith before she became a Christian. Uh, she talks about it as someone who had never heard this stuff before. Uh, so this is what she says. She says, Christians claim that Jesus was God, the Son of God, and all this stuff about the Trinity, and really, I had no idea what they were talking about. They claimed this resurrection, which made no sense to me. Not that I didn't believe that Jesus could rise from the dead if he were God, but I had no idea what possible relevance that could have since I didn't understand about the fall, sin, the final resurrection. I assumed these were all myths with no more relevant deep meaning than a fairy tale except maybe metaphorical, spiritual meanings. I wasn't even interested because I never understood what importance that event, the resurrection, should have for me because no Christian ever explained that to me. They would just say crazy stuff like, I have been washed in the blood of the lamb, and now I'm saved. Jesus died for your sins. Don't you want to be saved? And then they'd paint portraits of hell, and it made zero sense to me. It's just as though someone had said to me, my red balloon popped, and then candy canes fell out of the sky. Your rabbit is winking at me. Doesn't all that make you want to buy a new Nissan? And I'm not exaggerating. This nutshell gospel message makes absolutely no sense to a non-Christian, no meaningful sense anyway. You just have no idea what they are so excited about. So Jesus rose from the dead. Big whoop. Good for him. So what? It's really well put. Okay, so we get why Jesus had to die. Well, he had to die for our, okay, he had to die for our sins. He had to take our place. He had to take our punishment on him on the cross. Our, all our bad stuff gets thrown on him. Okay, so he had to die on the cross for our sins. Okay, okay. But why did he have to rise from the dead? Short answer. Jesus' resurrection is necessary because eschatology precedes soteriology bad communication, right? Really bad communication. Okay, I mean, but let me explain. But just maybe that's helpful for some of the nerds out there. Um, let me explain. There was a goal. There was a goal uh, for mankind from the very beginning of mankind. There was a goal for mankind before the fall. Okay, so go back before the fall, before sin, before death was ever a thing for mankind. Okay, that goal, what's the goal for mankind? Adam and Eve, what's it, I got a plan for you. What's God's plan for Adam and Eve right at the beginning? It's that they would enter into God's seventh day, I think this is what you're saying, seventh day, Sabbath rest, right? Got the yes. Okay, so what was the goal from the beginning? It is to enter into God's seventh day, Sabbath rest. What does that mean? Okay, just remember, Genesis tells us God created the, the, uh, all of creation in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. Okay, that is held out as an invitation to Adam and Eve to enter into that rest. The goal from the beginning of mankind was that they would enter into God's heavenly rest with God, body and soul. So you could say, even though Adam walked with God in the garden, he did not see God. He could not see God as God truly, truly is. While Adam was created very, very good, he was not perfected. 
We know this. We know he was not perfected until he completed the work that God had given him to do. And because God gave him work to do. And he wasn't perfected until the plan was, go do the work that I've given you to do. Follow this pattern. You work, and then you earn your rest. He had work to do. Do your work. Earn this heavenly rest and reward. Okay, so while Adam was created very good, he still had a body that could die. If he, until he passed that test in the garden, that test with that devil serpent in the garden, if he had passed that test, which happened at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, do you know what would have happened if he had passed that test and said no to the devil? Get out to the devil. Then he would have gotten to turn to that other tree, the tree of life, partaken of it as a symbol, as a sign of glory. He would have opened the way, if he had passed the test, he would have opened the way to heavenly glory, God's Sabbath rest, the way to being with God in heaven, physically, bodily, truly, as in, if Adam had passed the test, the, he would not have been set, oh, I'm going to heaven now. My soul goes up to heaven and my body will just what? Go into the ground, like stay down on earth? Like, no, the, Adam's soul and body uh, would have both gone into heaven. Fully, all of them would have been ushered into heaven. Only now he would have been perfected, what? Ethically, not even able to sin. He would have been perfected physically, uh, bodily, not able to die. There was a goal from, just if you, like, what? I have no idea what you just, there was a goal from the beginning for Adam and Eve, even before the fall. Do this stuff, you get, it, you get to enter into heavenly glory. They had not arrived yet. Eden was not the end goal. So that's just, that's the fancy word eschatology, as in there's a plan to get to ultimate heavenly awesome things from the beginning. And then Adam failed. Adam failed. He sinned. Instead of earning heaven, instead of earning eternal life and glory for himself and for all of us because he represented us, he earns death and he earns condemnation for himself and thanks, Adam, for all of us whom he represented. And what this means is, think about what this means is that death is not natural. Death is the penalty for sin. If there had been no sin, there would be no death. As in Adam, all die. And now the punishment, the penalty for sin, it looms over all, all of mankind. The penalty of sin is death. And that is so offensive to say today. And that's not new that that's offensive. Talking about death like that, that's always been taboo. Um, what the Greeks and the Romans did with this is they essentially denied their grief over things like death. And in the face of death, you had one group of Greeks, the Epicureans, say this stuff that we read, like, what, is it, what does it really matter? Like, you live your life realizing there is no life beyond the grave. When you die, you rot. Death is the end of everything. After death, there's only oblivion. So eat, drink, be merry because tomorrow it's all over. So go get your kicks in right now. There were other Greeks, the Stoics, who said, uh, it is what it is. It's just nature. Don't be afraid of it. Don't fight fate. That's just the way it goes. Some of the traditional Greeks said, listen, there's probably something for the soul after death. I don't know. We'll find out when we die. You really can't know. But basically the physical, it, it's, it, this is ultimately meaningless. 
today is the same old, same old. We, we, we still have every version of this today. Uh, today, what we tend to do is remove ourselves from death as much as possible. We try to avoid it as long as possible. Eat healthy, exercise, medicine, all that stuff. We avoid the inevitability of death, or we just don't talk about it. Sometimes we outright deny it like it's a giant conspiracy. I have been to many funerals. I have heard uh, many funerals where the families want the service to be a celebration of life. And I get, I get that. I really, really do. I understand that. And, and we should recognize that when a loved one dies, it is terrible. And it is significant and it is devastating. And a long, beautiful life does not mitigate or lessen the terribleness of a person's passing. It heightens it. Every death is a life cut short because we were not created to die. Others try, uh, you know, we avoid it. Others try to be so bold as to just mock death. Uh, there, there was an interview with Ricky Gervais. He's a comedian. He created, there, there's a show called The Office. He created the original uh, UK version of The Office. And he is, he is a self-professing atheist, very staunch atheist. There's this interview and about another one of his shows called Afterlife. And he's being interviewed about the show, and they talk about a scene in one of the episodes. There's a scene in a graveyard where a man, he, he comes across this lady. She's, uh, she's at the grave of her husband. And she says to this man, she says, well, it is all very sad, but I would rather live missing him than to think of him living missing me. So they're talking about this scene in the interview. And Ricky Gervais, he's, he's kind of laughing, and he says to the interviewer, he's like, but I am way too selfish. Like, I don't believe that at all. It's like, no way. I want to die first. I want to die first. And then the interviewer is coming back, and he says, okay, wait, but wait a minute. It is normal to fear death, right? Like, it's normal to fear being dead. And Ricky Gervais replies, he says, I don't fear death. I won't know about it. That's the best thing about being dead. You don't know about it. It's like being stupid. It's only painful for others. <laughs> and you are free to believe that. You really are free to believe that, to shrug off death in your head like that, but believing that does not actually shrug off death. So that anonymous artist, <laughs> goes by Banksy, uh, after that shredding incident, he also posted an Instagram quoting Picasso that says, the urge to destroy is also a creative urge. So his social commentary really is that he felt like destroying something beautiful because nothing lasts. It's all a joke. But then the social commentary on his social commentary followed up with, yeah, but uh, you only destroyed half your painting because you really can't let it go. As in one critic said, listen, the self-destructing girl with balloon is believed to be a comment on capitalism in the art market. However, if Banksy wanted to make a real statement, he would have totally destroyed the art. Instead, what remains could conceivably be put back together or kept in its shredded state to later be displayed or even sold again at increased value. Raising the idea that the work was less of a social commentary and more of a self-promoting publicity stunt. 
As in, you can mock death, you can mock life, and you can mock the meaning of all of it, but none of us actually live like that. None of us live like life and death are truly meaningless. Not ultimately. And then there are others. Mock death, you, you ignore it. Others go the way of acknowledging that death is for real. It's for real, for real. We all know about it, and we face it, and that's fine. And they try to make friends with it by saying things like, listen, death is natural. Death is natural, uh, and we're okay with it. Circle of life type stuff. Except it's just a circle of death. <laughs> This is the the sentimental approach to death of let's sentimentalize this thing of death. Death is just, death is just a part of life is a big old inconsistent, ironic, contradictory, nonsensical, non sequitur lie. The plan was always to get us to heaven physically, bodily, glorified, If Jesus does not get us out of the grave, then the devil won back in the garden. If Jesus does not get us out of the grave, Paul says you are still in your sins. Sin wins. If Jesus doesn't get us out of the grave, death wins. Loved ones, earlier this week, it was Veterans Day. When you hear about soldiers Uh, and you hear about war, and you hear about soldiers dying, when you hear about COVID deaths, like when you hear about a friend who has cancer, when you hear about the totally unnecessary tragedy of what happened in the pastor world, like when you hear about death and you go to that next funeral, when you hear about death, do you want less of it? Or do you want all of it to go away forever? Jesus did not come to get the upper hand on death. He came to destroy it. Death is a curse. It is a monster. It is an enemy. And Paul says it is the last enemy. And Jesus, and only Jesus, has overcome it. Having lived the life that we should live, that Adam should have lived... Jesus took the ultimate curse of death on the cross, and so we are thankful for representatives <laughs> like that, who took the death that we don't want to death, the punishment that we don't want to take. And he did it for you, and he did it for me, and he has destroyed that curse of death for us. There's that verse 29. We end with this. It's one of those really hard. It's one of those harder verses. It says, baptizing on behalf of the dead. If the dead are not raised, why are people baptized on behalf of the dead? What is Paul saying there? Right before that verse, Paul says that the last enemy to be destroyed is death itself, and that Jesus will put all things in subjection under himself, even death. And then, right after that hard verse, Paul is talking about dying. And he's saying the life of the Christian, the Christian life, it is characterized as a life of death, as in, Why are we in danger every day? I am dying every day. He's talking about baptism and all this. Listen, think about, remember what baptism is. It's a sign of death. Baptism going under the floodwaters, it's a sign of ultimate judgment. And that baptism sign signifies that we have gone through ultimate death with Jesus. We are baptized on behalf of the dead, meaning our bodies right now, we get it. We are as good as dead. 
And what we are hoping in and looking forward to is the resurrection of these dead bodies. Certain of it because we are baptized into Christ and Christ has been raised. So we will be raised. What good, what good is a baptism of death and judgment unless we come out the other side to resurrection? Then we can say this. We presently are the walking dead. We are. Dead man walking. Yeah. But resurrection is coming. Because of Jesus. That is the good news. That is our hope. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you that resurrection is true. We thank you that it is real. We thank you uh, that Jesus was raised from the dead, that he truly did overcome death, and not just for himself. We thank you that he did it for us. Lord, we thank you and praise you that though we die, we will live. Our bodies will live again forever and ever Whenever you decide to come back, we know that the souls in heaven are telling you right now, as awesome as heaven is, let's come back. Let's, let's do this resurrection thing. We pray, Lord Jesus, come uh, at the right time. Uh, come quickly. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for this salvation. We long for the day when we not only get to see you, but we actually get to hold you uh, and feel your embrace. We know that day is coming. Preserve us in this faith until you call us home or until you come back, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.